0: Well, if you would, open up your Bibles. You may be on your phone, or there's a Pew Bible right in front of you. If you have a Pew Bible, we're on page 1005. 1005. We're in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 13. So one helpful way of looking at the Bible is to see that the Bible is laid out kind of like a two-act play, the Old Testament and the New Testament, or better yet, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In our passage today, the writer expounds more upon Jesus uh, and this new covenant that he ushers in. Now, covenants are a very important part of our salvation. See, listen, there is no salvation. There is no transformation. There is no hope of heaven. There is no hope for you apart from God's covenants. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is kind of like a contract, but it isn't. (laughs) Like a contract, a covenant provides a means by which two parties uh, may come together in agreement. But the issues with contracts is uh, contracts is they, they, they have options uh, for one party to cut and run if the other party fails them, right? A contract is entered into to cover your butt. <laughs> but a covenant is spectacularly different a covenant stipulates how both parties will bless the other. And they they stipulate what could happen if you fail. But each party who enters into a covenant makes a different kind of promise. It's a promise that says no matter if the other party fails, I will live up to my end of the bargain. That's why marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant Husbands and wives promise to be a blessing, no matter if the other person is or isn't. Listen, God doesn't call us into a contract with him. No, he relates to us through covenants, covenants that are full of grace and mercy. Now, the last time we were together in the book of Hebrews, we read these words from uh, 722. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And what we'll see in our passage today is that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, God has ushered in a new covenant that makes the old covenant obsolete. And when we understand what God has done for us in this new covenant, it will set our hearts at rest, and it will cause us to live fruitful lives with great joy. Are you ready? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 13. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declare the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, We want to know his way, and we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, this word comes to us uh, with great beauty and clarity, um, yet we struggle to really rest in the truth that it brings us. We Christians can be people who strive a lot. We work hard to prove our worth to you, but we are able to rest in Christ. We pray that this message would ring true to us this morning as we study it together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in March Madness. I think we all know that by now. Uh, as I've said before, none of my teams are, are even remotely close to being in. But supposedly, you still can win. See, AT&T is running an upgrade promotion on their Samsung phones. <laughs> it doesn't matter how old your phone is or if it even works. Just trade it in for a brand new one. Now, it's hard to argue against an upgrade. Now, I'm actually thinking about downgrading my phone. I'm thinking about downgrading my iPhone 12 to this. This is the first mobile phone I ever owned. It's my trusty old Motorola bag phone. Now, if you're under 40 years old, you probably think this is like a laptop or something. But look, his jaw is dropped. I love that. This is a phone, all right? The old phone from the 80s. And when you walked around town with this, oh boy, everybody's like, he's a mover, he's a shaker. Well, the question before us today is this. Who in their right mind would go back to a bag phone after owning a Galaxy S22 or an iPhone 13? That is what the writer in this letter is saying, but with another matter in mind. The first recipients of this letter, remember, they were were considering leaving the perfection and freedom of Jesus' ministry in this new covenant and going back to work under the weight of the law for God's approval under the old covenant system. The writer to the Hebrews um, has heard that some in the church are saying, we want to downgrade We want to go back to our old life under the old covenant, they said. See, they they think that there would be a lot less persecution than when they lived the Christian life. And also, there's just something about having religious activities to do that makes us feel that we're doing well with God, right? If you're a Christian here today, you live with the constant offer to downgrade your relationship with God. Instead of resting in the grace of the gospel and walking with joy in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is this offer to pick up rules and duties, not necessarily bad things, but to to try to live them out in our own fleshly power. And if you do well one day, well, pat yourself on the back, you got God's approval. And if you don't do well, you feel bad, but and there's always tomorrow. How foolish are we to take our relationship with God out of Christ's hands and take over for ourselves. Look at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. And then verse 13, he writes that because the new covenant in Christ has come, the old one is now obsolete, like my back phone. Even if I could power it up, you know what? The cell networks have totally changed. It could not connect. It would not even work. If you see me walking around the village with it on my hip, you know I'm just showing off Or or trying to confuse the young ones. My friends, the old way of relating to God and working for salvation is over. We hear that in our head and we're like, yeah, 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 it's over. No, it's over. God has ushered in a new covenant. One where Christ does all the work to make you worthy. He does it all. The writer here is saying that Jesus has a much more excellent ministry. Far better than anything you Or a priest or any other religious system could ever do for you. So whatever you do, don't ask for a downgrade. The big point this morning is this. Jesus serves us. He serves us with his much more excellent ministry. And this and this alone must transform us in how we live as God's children. We'll look at this under two headings. We will see that Functionally, Christ has this much more excellent ministry. And then we'll see experientially, experientially, Christ has this much more excellent ministry. First, the ministry of Jesus is functionally much more excellent. So the big idea here is this. And just as a smartphone's functions are much more excellent than the functions of an old bag phone, so too Christ. And add to this, I know you can always upgrade your cell phone, but with what Christ has done, there is no upgrade. So let's look at three functionalities, so to speak, that the writer shows us in our text. First, the first functionality is that Christ ministers in the true tabernacle or tent. This might seem insignificant, but when he presses into your heart, you'll, you'll rejoice. We see this in verse 2, where it states that, relating to Christ, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What does he mean by true tent? Well, he doesn't mean true versus false. He means true rather than shadow or copy. What if I told you I owned an old Corvette, beautiful red Corvette, Woo! early 70s, you know, before they put the bumper, plastic bumpers on them? And what if you came over to my house one day to see it, maybe even drive it? And when you showed up, I pulled out this. A model, toy model of a beautiful red Corvette. See, it's got the old metal bumper chrome, all right. It's at least a 72 or earlier. Now, what is wrong with what I just did? There's nothing wrong with this model. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the real or true Corvette. It's just a copy. It's a shadow of the real thing. It should point us, it should give us a longing for the real thing, right? The writer says in verse 5 that the tent in which the Old Testament priests ministered is a copy or shadow of the heavenly things. What does he mean? Well, the writer explains in verse 5 that God gave Moses a pattern for building the tent or tabernacle in which the earthly priests would minister in. And what was that pattern? The one that exists in heaven, the true tent. There is a true tent in heaven where Jesus is seated, where Jesus did his work. Verse 5 says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Remember when I gave you the law, the commandments, I also gave you grace. I gave you an access into the heavenly realms. There's a true temple in heaven where my people experience grace upon grace. Now, take that measurements. take what you've seen there and create something physical on earth that the priest can minister in. God showed Moses a tent in heaven where sins are forgiven. And he said, pattern this earthly tabernacle to the one that exists in heaven. And this is amazing, right? The writer is making an overwhelmingly powerful point. With regards to your sins being forgiven, Christ ministers in the true tent of heaven for you and for me. So why on earth, no pun intended, would you go back to worshiping in an earthly tent made up of human priests? That's the argument. Does it make sense? The second, fun- second functionality is that Christ presents the offering we need. If you were a little boy or girl and you were born in Act 1 uh, of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you would ask your father, Daddy, um, why do priests sacrifice innocent animals? And he would reply, he would say something along the lines, We need an innocent lamb to substitute for our sinful selves. And God in his mercy and grace, he accepts this sacrifice on our behalf. Now, verse 3 reminds us that a priest must first bring in a gift for himself, an offering for his own sins. And then he's able to minister in this earthly tent. Jesus, on the other hand, freely offers himself the richest of gifts in the presence of God himself. And he offers the sacrifice of his sinless life. And this is what frees us from sin once and for all. God sent his innocent son to be our substitute. This is the gift of God for us. God pledged that he would be our God and we would be his people, and he will not let our sins or our failures cause his covenant promise to fail. And that is why he sent his son, which is why John the Baptist rejoiced that day when he saw Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yeah, yes. (laughs) And the third functionality of the new covenant is, listen, is that Christ is seated. Verse one, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We touched upon this briefly in the very first sermon. In chapter one, verse three, we read, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer here continues to contrast between new covenant ministry of Jesus with the old covenant Levitical priesthood. If you recall the design of the tabernacle and later the temple, you will remember that neither of them had a chair in them, right? Why? Because the work is never done. Old Testament priests could never sit down. The famous fourth bridge in Scotland has been continually painted since the year was completed in 1893. As soon as the painters finish painting the mile and a half long span of bridge, they must start all over again as the paint only protects for a short time. The Old Testament priests had no seat in the temple because their work was never done They offered sacrifices all day long, nine to five, nine to five, every day except the Sabbath. They never sat. And when they closed up shop to head home, they knew that they would be back the very next day. But Christ is seated. Why? Because his work is forever done. And check this out, and allow it to press deeply into your souls today. Listen. Because Christ Jesus is seated, so to us, so to us. Check out what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Remember, we talk a lot about our union with Christ. The perfect life he lived, we lived in him. Uh, The death he died, we died in him. We rose with him. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6. God has raised us up with him and what? Seated us. Seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. It's mystical, I don't fully understand it, but God somehow by his spirit has united us to Christ's life in such a powerful way that as he is seated in heaven, we are with him in heaven in some true and real way. Now, it is what the original audience needed to hear. And I think it's what we need to hear too. The Christian life is not supposed to be a treadmill every day where we get up and we think we need to perform good deeds to earn God's approval or or keep our record clean or to prove we're really good Christians. No, listen, because Jesus is seated, we too are to be seated. Think this through. What if every time you sin, and we we all sin daily, right? And, And what if Jesus... What if Jesus, every time you sinned, had to get up from his chair in heaven and offer another sacrifice for your sins? That just wouldn't seem right, right? Our passage says, he will not get up for you. Why? Does he not love you? No, he loves you. He won't get up because his work of offering sacrifices for your sins is over. Instead, we, when we sin, we approach his throne of grace. We saw that in Hebrews 4, right? And receive, we receive mercy and grace to what? Help us in our time of need. And what does Jesus do then? He doesn't rise and get up. No, he sits and he points to that cross. And he says, all the mercy and all the grace you will ever need for a lifetime of sin has been secured for you on my cross. My righteousness is your righteousness. Now, let my grace continue to cover you. Rest in it. I love you. Press on in holiness. Why on earth do we want to go back to living some obsolete system of working under God's law and taking our sins to the priest who has to once again offer sin for himself before he can offer one on your behalf? See, we have a much more excellent ministry in this new covenant through the blood of Jesus, and it causes us to delight in the love of God, so much so that we cannot help but live for him. If you're a Christian here today, here's what you need to be on the lookout for. There's a tendency in us to set up tents. Though Christ has fully mediated a perfect relationship for us in God, we can feel as if We must be doing something to merit or maintain this relationship with God. And we can take good things like the privilege of prayer or scripture study or service in the church and and we can set up a tent and perform. Listen, the Christian life is full of wonderful duties that we get to live out. The law of God is good. Producing fruit for the kingdom and for our king is good. But it all comes down to our proper motivation. Are we somehow trying to put God into our debt by doing good works? Or are we doing good works because God has canceled all our debt? Do we strive to earn God's love? Or do we strive because we already have all the love God could ever give us in Christ Jesus? So, Jesus' ministry is much more excellent functionally now let's look and see how his ministry is much more excellent experientially and I don't have any more props I'm sorry isn't it true that the that the better the functions are on your smartphone the better the experience of it right That's what the writer is saying here. Jesus is bringing about a much more excellent experience of the new covenant that he mediates. Now the writer says there's something at fault with the old covenant, verse six and seven. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What is that fault with the first covenant? Not God, right? Remember earlier we read in this letter that it is impossible for God to lie and that he is perfectly good and therefore God always fulfills his promises. He always lives up to his part of the covenant. So the fault of the old covenant doesn't lie with God. Nor is it the words of the covenant, the law of God. In verses 8 and 9, the writer references God's covenant that came through Moses. God delivered the nation out of bondage in Israel. And, and, and up on Mount Sinai, God spoke, to God. Uh, God spoke to Moses. And he gave him his law, not once but twice, right? Remember that? And the second time when God brought the law down to the, God's people, they said, yes, we will do this. The law of God is good, especially if you're young here. God's law is good. It's not meant to spoil your fun. We as human beings are right to affirm the law of God. You know, life does fall apart when we have other gods than him. (laughs) Life does fall apart when we worship things other than God. And we should love our neighbors and not steal or kill or covet. The problem isn't that the words of the covenant are at fault. No, so then, if the problem isn't God or the law of God, then what's the problem? The problem lies with us. The problem lies with the people. The people, are human beings, are faulty. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 8 For he finds fault with them. Them. Who's the them? It's the Old Testament people of God. What was wrong with the Old Covenant people of God? Please understand this, they wanted to be faithful, but they did not have the power or the capacity to be faithful. The scholar Marcus Dodds explains it this way, the old covenant was faulty because it did not provide for enabling the people to live up to the terms or conditions of it. It was faulty in as it did not sufficiently provide against their faultiness. In other words, the old covenant was faulty because the people who received it were faulty. They were incapable of following through on the demands of the law. Not, not that they couldn't do them, you know, many of them, uh, you know, every day, but there was, there was always failure looming around the corner. It's, it's, like, it's like asking a 150-pound man uh, to keep lifting a 100-pound weight over his head. He might have the capacity to lift it a few times, But at some point, the weight will come crashing down. So the first covenant, it wasn't that the 100-pound weight of the law was bad, but that the nation did not have the power to to live it out. And understand this, God knows this, which is why he makes this promise through the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. In verses 8 through 12, the writer quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. There is a new covenant coming. And it will change everything. So then what is new about the new covenant? Three things in our text. There's more obviously. But first, God gives the spiritual power equal to his moral requirements. We read this in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Please understand, this is far more than you memorizing scripture, right? F.F. Bruce writes, even memorizing memorizing of the law of God does not guarantee the performance of what has been memorized, right? We're all like, yeah, I know. Experienced that in my own life. Jeremiah is talking about what God promised to the prophet Ezekiel that Grayson read from earlier. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. This is the new birth that Jesus speaks of. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's God's greatest desire. The main theme of the entire Bible, Act 1, Act 2, is I will be their God, and they will be my people. But how can that take place? People are sinful. I have a way. The new covenant is coming. In the Old Testament, God promised a day when his people will have a new birth, a new heart, that can now actually beat for God, and the power of the Spirit dwelling in them so they can actually live it out. Not that we don't fail, but we actually can live out the law. Jesus promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit to not just dwell with them, but in them. The night before he went to the cross, he gathered his disciples and said to them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. How's that possible? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And and then later um, he said, And then I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The beautiful reality of the new covenant is that if you are in Christ by faith in him, then God dwells in you. How amazing is his grace towards us, that he gives us his spirit so that we may be faithful as his people. It is a powerful work of the Holy Spirit that God writes his law into our minds and upon our hearts. God graciously gives us what we need, which is a God-shaped mind and a heart, and then he fills it with himself. Now, this doesn't mean we will always do what's right, If you've been a Christian for more than a week, you know that's not true. But it means that those who have this new life, this new heart in Christ, we no longer see the law as irksome. It's not optional. Our heart's desire is to live so as to produce fruit of the Spirit, right? If you're a Christian, you want to honor God with your life. Unbelievers don't, right? You understand that? So the first new thing about the new covenant is that God gives us the spiritual capacity necessary to live in a relationship with him. Second, God gives his covenant community universal knowledge of him. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one's his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This, too, is a work of the Holy Spirit in the covenant community. Under the old covenant, there was a minority within the nation who knew the Lord, and they continually called out to the majority, come, know the Lord, return to him, trust in him, draw near to him, Experience experience his grace. But now God's covenant has burst beyond a minority within one nation. Today, in Christ's kingdom, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, every believer, all of us, from the least to the greatest, knows the Lord. And not just of the Lord, but we have intimate knowledge of him. Even the smallest child in the kingdom knows the Lord. The story was related to me um, recently. Um, Ian Dupree and Wayne Dupree... um, Wayne lost his wife, Linda, last year. Ian lost his mom. And um, as most of you know, we love you, Ian. Uh, Ian um, is a man with Down syndrome. And sometimes he's really can be hard to understand. You gotta lean in and listen. We love you, Ian. Um, But his his father, Wayne, asked him recently, um, they were talking about his mother passing away, and Wayne says, you've been so strong, Ian. You've been so strong. Did mom prepare you for this? And he actually rebuked his dad and spoke in a utterly clear, loud voice, the Lord. The Lord prepared him. That day is here where everyone who's called by his name knows the Lord from the least to the greatest. Now, not that we don't need to mature in our relationship with God, but we all know and experience Christ. So Jesus's ministry is much more excellent in that we experience intimacy with God as he dwells within us. Thirdly, God remembers his people's sins no more. We get to experience this. Under the old covenant, there was this annual reminder of the nation's sins. Uh, Yes, daily, there was continual sacrifices in the tent and later in the tabernacle. But remember that once a year, the high priest went behind the, the, the inner curtain in the inner sanctuary. That was the day of atonement. And, and every year, they remained a reminder of the nation's sins that was taken care of on that day. But the day after, well, there's more to remember. Listen, the new covenant brings an end to that era. Verse 12, I will be merciful for their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more listen the experience that we have in as christians is that listen god forgives us in such a way that he remembers our sin no more there is no Constant reminder. Now, I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. Now, perhaps the theological gears are turning in your head, and you're thinking, well, yeah, yeah, okay, I can't remember the God, you know, but, but, but God's all-knowing. Uh, how can he forget anything, you know? How many angels can you get on the head of a pin? Well, God's forgetting of our sin is tied with the first part, his forgiving of sin. If you owe someone $1,000 and you cannot pay, you have a debt that is remembered against you, correct? Now, if someone comes along on your behalf and pays off your debt, the one you owed no longer remembers your debt because it's been paid in full. My friends, that's what God has done for us. In Christ, our debt is paid in full and therefore, God can declare that he remembers our sin no more. Oh, that we would believe this. If only we could rest in this grace. Oh, how we would stop striving to prove our worthiness or look at flaws in other people and point them out and feel prideful. We would stop all that and we would just rest in our worthiness that is ours in Christ. And listen, when when we rest in the worthiness of Christ that is ours by virtue of our faith in him, our work on earth is transformed. It's not like we sit on our hands and go, I'm resting in God's grace. I don't have to do anything today. I wish I had another wordle to do. You only get one a day, can you believe that? Listen, there's a direct correlation between how well we rest in Christ and abide in Christ and how well we produce fruit for Christ and his kingdom. In 1517, the Augustinian monk and priest Martin Luther, he made a great discovery though he'd been a monk and a priest a very, very long time. He was continually troubled. He grieved over the smallest of sins, and none of his religious activities could ever quell his conscience. Now, after his conversion, he, he said, if ever a monk got into heaven by monkery, so should I also have gotten there. Evidently, he was a very good monk. His superior grew so tired of his endless groveling over his sin that he sent him off to be a professor. <laughs> That's what we need, right? Um, and while studying the book of Romans, specifically chapter 1, he had an experience that resulted in what the book of Hebrews would call a, a change of covenant. What he found was the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus' ministry of a far superior covenant that, that would sweep across Germany and all around the world. The commentator Richard Phillips wrote that Luther had been seeking God according to the varied means of Roman, the Roman Catholic system of religion. He had tried confession. He had tried the relics of the saints. He had tried works of penance. Luther had labored to be accepted by God through every device of a religious system built on works. But none of these really worked, he found. They could not overcome the reality of his sin and of God's judgment. They could not truly bring him to God. Or to use kind of the words of our passage, Luther was serving in a tent set up by man, a tent in which he and the other priests work hard to try to offer gifts and sacrifices for them and themselves. By God's grace, Luther came to see that the gospel isn't about us working in our human tents to earn salvation, but rather Christ. He's already done it. He's done the work already for us. Now, some of you here maybe may think that what Christianity offers is really just a chance to work hard at religious activities. You think that Christianity is an invitation to a moral life, an invitation to accept a busy life of doing things that we Christians say aren't optional. But it's not true. Christianity is an invitation for you to accept Christ as your substitute, to see your desperate need for him, and to trust him as your mediator, and then you will find rest for your soul. For the Christian here, we need to be reminded, we need the reminder that that just as Jesus Christ is seated, so too we are seated with him. How foolish it is for us to have experienced the perfect work of Christ, and then to go back and ask for a downgrade, to set up our own tents of religious work. Listen, this doesn't mean that we sit on our hands, but rather our motivation for living for Christ is that Christ is alive for us. We desire to do God's will because he has written it on our hearts and he has given us his Holy Spirit. We don't do good to earn God's favor. We do good because God already favors us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this gospel, these words are magnificent. Oh, that we would believe them if we would but just wrap our heads around these truths and delight in them, we would forever be changed. This is the call of the Christian life, to look upon Christ, to see him seated, and that we are seated with him, and that our lives now are lives full of mercy and grace and love and acceptance, and the power of the Spirit to honor you as we serve you, help us to grow in this area. May we mature as your people, we pray. Amen.